Welcome, everyone. So are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here, we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. That's true, but all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of. And coming up, Martha Nussbaum's The Fragility of Goodness. start off today with a a little thanks to my mom. I am that guy, the the cheap, entitled jerk who watches a decent amount of PBS programming and gets completely annoyed when they have something amazing on, something I'm really into, that probably was quite costly, like, I don't know, some sort of epic Ken Burns documentary. And the American public broadcaster, the one that absolutely needs donations to survive, they have the gall to ask for said donations during something I'm enjoying. Sadly, I don't think I'm the exception. Luckily, though, there are people out there, like my mom, evidently enough of them that contribute that they keep PBS afloat. They throw down a hundred buck donation for some awful tote bag made from an old burlap sack and a slightly used Andy Williams CD. Why am I bringing this up? Considering the words that usually come out of my mouth, it may surprise you listeners that I do in fact read most everything that is talked about on this podcast, but not this time. The fragility of goodness was sprung on me really late. So one catch up resource I used was a PBS interview that Martha Nussbaum did with Bill Moyers. So Thanks, PBS, and thanks, Mom. Burlap sacks. Wow. I got to get in on that. But, you know, thanks again for for all your hard work and the research that you put into preparing for these books that we discuss. I mean, more YouTube clips the night before. That's quite the amazing sacrifice that you make for our show. Anyway, so so first, and uh, as usual, let's do the, the brief summary. So, Martha Nussbaum is an American philosopher who works at the the University of Chicago. She specializes in ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. Her book, The Fragility of Goodness, was written in 1986, and it garnered a lot of praise by specialists and non-specialists alike. And it's been very influential, both in and outside of philosophy. When you watch young kids play, uh, specifically watch them playing with action figures, as sweet and endearing as it is, it's also completely and totally boring. There is absolutely no story that they craft. It's just a complete lack of story. 
They take their favorite figure, the one that they identify with, say, Iron Man. They give him infinite power, invulnerability. So Iron Man, he fights Kylo Ren, and he actually you know, just smashes Kylo Ren. Then he takes on Superman, and no problem, he flings Superman across the room. He fights a giant Raggedy Andy doll, and he just pummels poor Raggedy Andy into the ground. Kids, they don't understand yet that the story would be more interesting if their hero had a weakness, faced some sort of invulnerability. We kind of face this in life, even as we age. Like, what do we end up valuing more? A kind of a great sense of invulnerability that could come from some kind of power? Or do we open ourselves up to becoming more vulnerable and create better stories? Yeah, some, some vulnerability makes for, for better stories, for sure. But as you suggest, it might also make for better lives, too. In other words, maybe we'd be better off if we opened ourselves up a little bit more, rather than, uh, you know, always playing it safe. Okay, so actually, you know what? That's not a bad way of introducing one of the main themes of Noosebombs, the fragility of goodness. But you know what? Before I get into the specifics... Let me begin with a story that I've discussed before, but one that I think is is pretty relevant here. Okay, so this is about a remarkable moment in Homer's Odyssey. So what happens is that lost at sea, on his way back from Troy, Odysseus is rescued by the immortal goddess Calypso, and he's held captive by her for, for seven years on her beautiful home island of Ogygia. Now, Over this time, Calypso falls in love with Odysseus and promises to make him ageless and immortal on one condition. Namely, on the condition that he would only stay here with her forever. But Odysseus, however, refuses her. Instead, he spends his days on the shore, with his back to his captor, giving himself to tears and heartache as he as he looks across the sea thinking of his wife back home in Ithaca whom he hasn't seen for 17 years now when you think about it this is remarkable it's remarkable because what odysseus is doing is not only rejecting the opportunity to become immortal but he's also rejecting the opportunity for an eternal relationship with an, with an ageless, transcendently beautiful goddess. Okay, so now, why would Odysseus choose his, his mortal, aging wife over all that Calypso offers? And why the, the perils of his craggy Ithaca over the eternally peaceful and, and perfect island of Ogygia? Well, here's the thing. Calypso's paradise might offer infinite ease and leisure, yet it does so at the cost of attachments to the real world. Now, what I mean by this is that for Odysseus to exile himself with her is for him to deprive himself of both the the cares and the tribulations of the very real human life that he left behind, a life of caring for his family, his wife, and his homeland. And it would also deprive him of a life of of being cared for by them, too. I mean, we have to remember that Calypso is a god. And so, by definition, she's perfect. And therefore, doesn't really need anything at all. Let alone Odysseus. 
what can he then really offer her? And just as importantly, what does she really need from him if she's already perfect? Well, nothing. But Penelope actually needs him. He can feel useful with and and responsible for Penelope. He can extend to her his care and concern. And likewise, she can genuinely care for him and provide for his needs. Okay, so what's the point here? (laughs) Well, what this story highlights, among many other things, of course, is the attraction on the one hand towards a life of of total self-sufficiency and invulnerability, which would be to live like a god. But on the other hand, also a real pull towards a life of, of vulnerability and contingency, which is, of course, what Odysseus genuinely wants and eventually gets. Okay, well, so now, why am I even mentioning this? Well, because I think this little episode in Homer nicely introduces some of the, the major themes of Martha Nussbaum's seminal work, The Fragility of Goodness. Okay, well, so let's turn to it. So, what Nussbaum says there is that there's a huge part of human life that's very exposed and vulnerable, and so open to, uh, to luck and chance. I mean, much like a plant, we're susceptible to all sorts of external things, and sometimes, well, we're just uh, plain helpless in the rain. In other words, we're fragile beings, both threatened by things external to us, but also at the same time in constant need of them too, if we want to survive. But here's the thing. There's also something divine about us. That's to say, we're intelligent and crafty beings with the capacity to actively direct and shape our own lives. So, it seems possible that this intelligent, rational element should be able to to ultimately guide us and to save us from all of um, life's contingencies. It should help us to rise above the fray, above the, the messiness and arbitrariness of life. Now, it's exactly this, uh, this divine saving power of reason that Nussbaum takes most ancient philosophers to be, to be preoccupied with. In other words, she argues that it's primarily the rational life they want us to cultivate. Because it's only this that could free us from living at the mercy of chance, and so saving us from disappointment and unhappiness. Okay, but Nussbaum adds that the ancient philosophers also realized that things were a little more complicated than this. And that's because even though the the pursuit of self-sufficiency and the, the effort to banish contingency from human life was important, many of these philosophers still realized that there was something valuable about a human life that stayed open to some risks and to chance. In other words, maybe the best life is one which is to some extent a vulnerable, not not an invulnerable one. So, an important question that Nussbaum explores in her book is the question of how immune and how safe it is we should make ourselves. Or, or conversely, how open we should be to life in order to live in such a way that's best and most valuable for a human being. I mean, on the one hand, there seems to be something, well, I don't know, um, inhuman 
about living like a like constricted and perfectly insulated being, right? A little like a like Calypso, maybe. But on the other hand, there also seems to be something foolish about living in such a way that we risk loss all the time. Well, these are the sorts of things that Nussbaum explores in her book. And again, she does it by turning to views of the ancient Greek philosophers, who, though ever attentive to such issues, themselves can't always seem to straddle that fine line. The wisdom of podcasting compound is actually located in the midst of Canada's version of Mayberry. In case some of you listeners aren't 85 years old, Mayberry was the uh, fictional setting of the Andy Griffith show, and it was an impossibly folksy little town. That's what it's like here. Just people smiling and waving and borrowing sugar and sipping lemonade. But I, I do not live here. I don't think the local friendliness bylaws would allow for it. I live in a small apartment in the big bad city. And honestly, I have on average, I don't know, half a conversation per year with my numerous neighbors. I often find myself just sitting in a darkened living room, of course, watching Sopranos and mulling over how little value I place on friendliness. But that said, even I know there's a clear distinction between friendliness and friendship. Yes, my hot take, really hot, friends are a good thing. If we look at what Aristotle says, does he really, truly feel the same way? Oh, that that dark apartment. I don't even want to think about it. It's so awful. No windows or or any light source other than your uh, soprano's nightlight. So sad. But anyway, I guess your point was really one about the importance of friendships in Aristotle. And I assume you're asking this because, well, it's what you happen to come across in your, in your deep research dive on YouTube. But yeah, it's, it's true. This topic is actually very relevant, and it is something that Nussbaum discusses quite a bit. Okay, so first let me give some, uh, some broader context about Aristotle's view. So, Aristotle often speaks as if, in order to be um, truly happy, or to live, a, to live a genuinely valuable life, you need a bunch of external resources, goods, in other words, that are in some sense outside of your control. In other words, if you want a good life, you need to be graced with some good fortune or luck. So, for example, you'll need things like um, some money and some uh, good looks, he says. And importantly, you'll need friends or relationships. And again, the point here is that these are things that are in some sense gifts and not a product of one's own doing. But here's the thing. In a different section of the same book in which he says these sorts of things, Aristotle also speaks of the goodness of a human life as consisting in nothing but what's in our control, what's in our firm grasp. In other words, what he does there is he really narrows or constricts what a good life is, allowing in as valuable only those things or activities that are pretty much invulnerable to chance or to outside influences. Okay, so if all this sounds a bit abstract or or confusing, let's look at some of the, the examples he gives. 
or at some of the things that he spends significant time discussing. So let's start with the importance he assigns to friendship, as you raised. Okay, well, basically Aristotle takes friendship to be a necessary part of a, of a valuable human life. I mean, he even says that absolutely no one would choose to have every external good imaginable, you know, like, a, like wealth or, or power or honor and so on, and yet be alone. Again, the suggestion seems to be that without friends, we just don't have everything we need to to realize our happiness. Now, why is this exactly? Why do we need friends? Well, I think the short answer is basically that we're made better by good friendships. Friends bring out the best in us. They help us to fulfill or round out our potential, which in turn makes our life a better one, he thinks. Okay, But here's the problem. Friendship is also clearly a relational good, right? And so it's not something that's ultimately secure. In other words, it's not something entirely up to us. It's not ultimately a stable thing. And so, well, we're susceptible to its loss. So friendships make the goodness of our lives vulnerable in a dangerous way. That's to say, they're important to us, yes. But at the same time, because they're of a, of a contingent nature, they ultimately put our happiness at significant risk. Now, this is what happens when you expand your life to include important and valuable goods. You open yourself up to chance and to reversals of fortune. Okay, well, so I think this is partly why later in the same work, Aristotle tries out another version of the best human life. And he actually seems to think it's, it's superior to the one involving friendship and having other external goods. So what kind of life is this? Well, basically, it's a life marked by, by pure theoretical reasoning or intellectual activity. It's a life involving the, the contemplation of scientific and philosophical truths totally cut off from any attempt to apply them to practical reality. Now, what's really important about this sort of life of contemplation is that it requires an almost complete withdrawal from everyday social and political life. It's the life of the loner. Okay, but what makes this such a, such a good or happy life? Indeed, the, the best one, according to him. Well, first of all, Aristotle says that it expresses our nature as rational beings in the highest way. That's to say, thinking is divine-like, something that the gods spend their time doing perfectly and continuously. So, when we um, contemplate scientific and, and philosophical truths, we come closest to becoming like gods. And Aristotle does believe that we should strive to be as, as godlike as possible. But more importantly for our purposes, the life of contemplation is the most stable, secure, or self-contained life, and so the most self-sufficient life. In other words, it doesn't depend on external goods and on other people. No, I mean, think about it. To contemplate philosophical or, or scientific truths, all a person needs is the very basic necessities of life. They just don't require many external goods at all. Nor do they need other people. All they require is solitude. 
So what's the result of this? Well, it's that people who live this way can't be robbed or, or deprived of anything for the reason that very little could take away the activity and the pleasure of contemplation. In this sense, then, the life of contemplation is the least vulnerable to external circumstances or misfortunes. And ultimately, this is what Aristotle takes to be the most invulnerable form of happiness that we can achieve, and so therefore superior to the sort of happiness that we get from a life that attaches itself to all sorts of relational goods and activities, which would include, of course, a life with friends. Now, the question is, is this sort of solitary, contemplative life really the best sort of human life we can aspire to? Well, I don't think so. And I don't think Nussbaum does either. Despite its um, potential tribulations and its risk, there's something beautiful about the contingent and the unknown. To be open to life, despite your inherent fragility, is, I think, truly a life most lived. I mean, let's not forget, even the ancient gods occasionally fell in love with us mere mortals. And why would they do that if they didn't want to risk being subject to loss? Well, maybe it's because they knew that some form of vulnerability was the key to a life most worth living. to the wisdom of podcast if you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general visit wisdomofpod.com and as usual we love to read your questions and comments reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on twitter at wisdom underscore pod our next episode toy story Thank you.